hey, this morning we're in uh, Romans. We're at the very end of Romans, the last three verses. If you're taking notes, uh, the title is A Call to Worship, A Call to Worship. And uh, as we pray, I want to pray for a few things. Um, I want to pray for uh, Memorial Day weekend and uh, just to give uh, a prayer for those families who are remembering um, their loved ones or friends who uh, gave their lives for our country. It reminds me of what Jesus said, uh, greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for a friend. It is an example that points us to the greatest uh, life that was laid down, which was Jesus for us, and even Jesus used that as a reference for that. Um, so we're going to pray for them. We also want to pray for, the obviously, the tragedy that happened this last week. I know it is on everybody's mind, and there's questions, there's frustration. Uh, if anything, for me, I think what it has brought to the forefront has been this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And we are filled and surrounded with brokenness everywhere, and we have the solution, and His name is Jesus. And, and so we're going to pray for these hurting families, and, uh, and we're going to pray uh, for the churches there. As Rob reminded me, they have a great opportunity uh, to be there and to witness uh, to these families and, and minister to them. And so we will pray for them. Um, but why don't we pray together? God, we come before you this morning, and uh, as we're going to look at a little bit here in our, in our text, um, God, you are able you are powerful. Uh, we are limited. We are not all over the world. We cannot minister to people in the, in the ways that they need to be comforted. Um, we cannot, we don't always know what to say or when to say it. We, we have so many limitations, but you do not. And we know that, God, you are able, which is why we come before you. And we pray for uh, the families this weekend who um, think about their loved ones, uh, think about relatives uh, who gave their lives um, for our country, for our freedom. We pray for uh, these families, Lord, that are grieving uh, just beyond comprehension, what, what we can even think or imagine. And uh, we don't even want to begin to try and put ourselves in their shoes. Uh, but we know, Jesus, that you have suffered with them and that you know exactly what they are going through. And so we pray that you would comfort them with the comfort that only you can. And we pray for the churches and the pastors uh, there and, and just the average, normal, everyday Christian, that you would use them mightily in that community, Lord, that, that you would do what only you can do, which is cause all things to work together for good, for the good of your people. But God, we pray that things like this would stop happening. <laughs> we pray that these things would um, go away. Lord, we are tired of seeing these tragic things. Uh, but, but God, we trust you. We know that you are good even in the midst of dark moments. We've learned that all throughout the book of Romans. And I pray that this morning we would uh, just reflect on your goodness and glory and salvation and, and what you have planned, not just for us now, but for the future. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A call to worship. Well, we have finally arrived at the end of Romans. Uh, I started this series with an illustration, if you were here. 
The illustration was a roller coaster. Thank you, Ron. It was a, a, a roller coaster. And I use that illustration to describe this letter because a roller coaster with its, with its thrills and chills, twists and turns, ascents and descents, this letter is a lot like that. The gospel according to the Apostle Paul, it will take you up to the highest peak and show you the beauty and wonder of God's glorious plan to save a broken world and broken people like you and me. And just as quickly, it will drop you down and show you the wretched plight of all humanity apart from God's saving grace. The gospel, according to Paul, it will bring screams of fear and shouts of laughter and tears of sorrow and tears of joy to all who read it by faith. And as we come now to the very end of the letter, to some degree, hearts still beating in suspense, at least I hope so, there is only one thought left for Paul, and it's this. It will go on the screen. All glory belongs to God because He alone possesses the power and wisdom to save, sanctify, and secure all peoples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this thought, Paul expresses in the form of a doxology. We were singing, some of you know, the doxology earlier on. Now, what is a doxology? That's kind of one of those Christianese words. Doxologies are expressions of praise to God that describe His glory, honor, or might, as one author put it. That word, doxology, it actually is a combination of two Greek words, doxa, meaning glory or praise, and logos, meaning word or utterance. So combine those two words, doxology simply means an expression of praise to God. And so what we have here at the end of Paul's elaborate defense and explanation of his gospel theology is a gospel-centered doxology which is a good thing for us as Christians to keep in mind because theology, which is the study of God and the things pertaining to God, it's not merely about learning a bunch of uh, facts and information and filling our minds with data. Theology, at least when it's done in the right way, isn't so that we can know more about God, but so that we can know God, know Him personally, know Him relationally. As some have said in various ways, to know God is to love God, and to love God is to glorify God. So remember, all gospel theology should ultimately lead to a gospel-centered doxology. It should lead, lead to a life of worship. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1, and, and let me just warn you, a lot of what we're going to say, I'm going to say this morning is a recap of the entire book of Romans. But what he says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in light, in light of what everything God has done for you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, the only rational thing to do in light of all of the things that God has done for you as He revealed in the gospel is to give your whole life to Him and in worship of Him. That's Paul's point. However, now that the letter is ending, Paul doesn't tell them to worship like he did in 12.1. Now he just worships. He just bursts out in doxology 
at the end. So let's read together Romans 16, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the, man, to, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me say it again, that the point Paul is expressing in this doxology, I'll say that phrase again, all glory belongs to God because He alone possesses the power and the wisdom to save and sanctify and secure all peoples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what we've seen, right, throughout the entire letter of Romans, all the way from beginning to the end. Paul has proven to us through the use of the Old Testament scriptures, through his understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and through the preaching ministry of the other apostles as well, that God has chosen to save individuals from all peoples of the earth, Jew and Gentile, and bring them to faith and obedience. Just consider the way Paul opens the letter in chapter 1. Paul writes this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So you see, from the beginning... To the very end, Paul's central theme is the good news that salvation has come, and it is available, and it is available to all because it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And because salvation from beginning to end is all of God and has absolutely nothing to do with us, all it has to do with us is the fact that we receive this gracious gift, Paul declares God alone deserves the glory forever and ever. Tim Keller, he's a, an author and pastor in New York, but he made this statement about this doxology. He said, Paul's aim in these last words is to move his readers, including us, to give glory to God. That is Paul's aim. Yes, I, I quoted earlier what it's about, but what is his purpose in saying it? His aim is to instill in us and inspire in us worship and praise. And because that's Paul's aim, that is our aim this morning. That as we think about what God has done for people like you and me, the hope is that our hearts and minds would not just walk away from this place the same or unchanged, but that we would be moved to worship Him with the whole of our lives. And in order to do that, we're going to consider the content of these words. After all, what does Paul say in this doxology, this resounding call to worship that is to inspire us 
to worship? And, and in order to answer that, or there's many ways to answer that question, but we'll keep it simple this morning. He does it by reminding his readers of the most central themes of this gospel that are discussed in this letter, primarily two things, what the gospel is and what the gospel does. It's these two things that cause Paul to worship in this doxology. So let's first consider what the gospel is. And the first thing I would say is that the gospel is the power of God. In the ESV translation, which is what most of us are reading here, Paul begins by saying, now to him who is able. Now that word translated as able in the Greek is the word dunameno, which is the verb of the Greek word dunamai, which many of you know is the, a, a word we use in English for dynamite. It means power. In fact, the King James Version translates that beginning part of that phrase, now to him that is of power. Now, as, as we've reflected on in several points in the letter, the theme of power is a key in understanding this letter. The power of God found in the gospel, at least according to Paul, stands in direct opposition and contradiction to the world's power. And in their day and age, that power was most obviously seen in the most powerful empire in the known world at that time, Rome. And these people are living in the very epicenter of global superpower. And it's in this backdrop that Paul says, you want to know what real power looks like? It's found in the message of the gospel. This is why Paul declares his thesis statement in chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, the dunamis of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, in the wisdom of God, it pleased God to insert and then demonstrate His eternal power, not through human sword, not through human strength, not through socio-political structures, not through some cosmic catastrophe, but simply through His words. In other words, His words, His gospel contains His power. And this power, it's important for us to recognize, it does not destroy like human power often does. It doesn't lock people down. It doesn't exploit. Instead, it saves. It was with words, remember? In the very beginning, it was with words that God created the heavens and the earth. It was with words that God revealed Himself to mankind. It was with words that He made covenant promises to the Jewish people. And it was the manifestation of the eternal Word, Jesus Christ. And through the preaching of Jesus, that God's power is unleashed on the world in order to bring about salvation. So what is the gospel according to Paul? Well, for starters, it is the power of God. But he says more about the gospel in this doxology. Secondly, notice the, the main focus of what the gospel is. It is a message about a person, and his name is Jesus. After all, that is what Paul writes 
about his gospel, right? That it's his preaching, it is his message. This, and his message is about this person, and his name is Jesus. And what Paul does in verses 25 and 26 is he basically describes, sort of in a, a related but different way, things that pertain to Jesus, which then causes him to burst out in doxological praise. Of course, then he re- desires that same response in his readers. But notice first, he calls Jesus the revelation of the mystery. In short, when Jesus came, he revealed what previously was unknown, which was previously hidden regarding, regarding God's plan to save mankind from their sins. When Jesus came in the incarnation, when he came and, and took on flesh and, and he became a human being, and when he ministered, when he was teaching and, and healing and casting out demons, and when he ultimately laid down his life on the cross, and when he rose again from the grave, everything about who Jesus was and what he did was a revelation of the mystery of God's salvation. You see, as Paul showed in this incredible letter, that when Christ came, mankind was in a bad place, and we can all say amen to that. Mankind was and still is living in the midst of a broken world, filled with broken people who are completely and totally unable to fix it on their own. This is Romans chapter 3 and 4. Oh, mankind has tried, right? We have tried to fix the issue. They tried to appeal to their own morality. Look at me. God, accept me. I'm a pretty good person. After all, I'm, at least I'm better than that person, right? We've tried. We've tried morality. Or maybe they appealed to their spiritual naivety. Hey, I didn't know. I didn't know God wanted that for me. He, he never told me. And, and even in those things, Paul says, you are not without, ex- or you are without excuse. They even appealed to their pedigree meaning their family heritage, right? The Jews, at least, they presumed, well, hey, we're, we're children of Abraham. We're all good. We can do whatever we want. We're still saved. But in all these things, mankind was unable to claw their way back into a right relationship with God. In all of their attempts, we couldn't fix what we broke when sin entered the world and when we sinned against a holy and just God. We couldn't have peace in our souls, because we lacked peace between us and God and our fellow man because of sin. Again, we tried religion. We tried looking within ourselves. We tried morality. Some of us even tried ignoring the reality or numbing ourselves to that reality. But as Paul showed early on, again, in the early chapters of Romans, though we tried to suppress the truth, like a beach ball being pushed under the water in a pool, the truth just keeps coming back up to the surface. But what we see throughout the history of Israel and through the Old Testament scriptures is God gave clues. God gave glimpses, shadows, types, forerunners, people who gave us hope that all was not hopeless and lost, and that God wasn't fully and finally done with us yet. And then one day, God came in the person of Jesus, and when He did, He revealed the mystery of salvation, that it isn't by works, 
that it isn't by religion, that it isn't by pretending to be a good person, and it isn't by what family you come from that we are made right with God. It's by God's grace alone in coming to save you and me, and it's through faith alone in what Jesus alone has done for you and me that we can be brought back into a right relationship with God. And to make that point abundantly clear, Paul writes one of the best phrases in Romans. In chapter 5, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Friends, the gospel is good news because it tells us we can stop We can stop trying to pretend like we're okay. We can stop trying to earn our way because God said, I've got it all done for you. The gospel is the good news that God, despite all of our shortcomings, failures, and offenses, is not against us. In fact, He is for us. That's the theme of our whole series. God is not against us. He is for you. Is this not what Paul celebrated in that great section of chapter 8 when he wrote these words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In other words, you can stop trying now. I've got this figured out. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Furthermore, he comments later on, he elaborates, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, the simplest way I can say what the gospel is that makes it so good is that God did what we could not do for ourselves. And that instead of leaving us to suffer a hopeless fate of judgment, which he could have done and still been just, he made a way for people like you and me to enter back into a right relationship with God through the simple means. It's so easy. Believe. Have faith. In his son Jesus, the one who lived, who died, and who rose again for our justification. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel is. That's the good news that brought Paul here at the end to this triumphant doxology. This guy, Paul, who worked harder than anybody, right? Martin Luther has that famous quote If anyone could get to heaven from his monkery, it was I. Well, Paul would say, if anyone could get into heaven from his being a Pharisee, it was I. And now he's saying, man, I put all of that aside. I count it all as rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And I ask this morning, does the gospel do that for you? Does the good news about what God has done for you, you who don't deserve, and me who, I who don't deserve that kindness or affection or even his attention to burst out in praise 
of Him and Him alone for what He has done. I hope it does, especially when you consider not just what the gospel is, but what Paul describes in this doxology, which is also what the gospel does in our lives. And and I've already mentioned some of it already, but let's go ahead and focus on that part directly. The first thing Paul says that he mentions there right in verse 25 of what the gospel does, in fact, it's the primary application of his praise to God beyond what God has done for them in Christ, and also what he continues to do for those who believe. But he says what the gospel does, first and foremost, is that it's able to strengthen you. Now, in this letter, Paul's greatest concern for his readers is to understand how to enter into a right relationship with God, which we've already said is through faith in the message of the gospel. However, his other great concern is that they would not only enter into this gospel, but that they would persevere in this gospel, that they would remain, that they would stand steadfast in it. You see, he knew, and we know, that trials await immediately after you cross that threshold of salvation and you enter in, right? It's not rainbows and unicorns, it's trouble, it's trial, it's tribulation. He knew that these things were coming, and his desire is that they would have such a grasp of the gospel that not only would they enter in by it, but that they would be kept by it as well. And for those of you who are parents, many of you are, you know exactly how Paul feels. Because as parents, you understand that one day your little child is not going to be in your house anymore and they're going to be off doing their own thing. And in the back of your mind, you're wondering, did I do enough to prepare them for life in a fallen world? Have I done enough? Have I trained them to wisely navigate through life in this world. And no matter how good of a parent you are, you never really feel like you've done enough. But as Christian parents, we have the same hope that the Apostle Paul had here for these believers, that though we are unable, and though even though we can do all that we can, we still could never be fully there like God can. But God is able, God is able to establish, to strengthen His people. In other words, God is in control. The tools we lack, He doesn't lack. And when we can't be there, He is there. He's always there for His children. And we can rest in the fact that when we're done with our work, God's work will continue on for generations and generations. And what God is able to get, He is able to keep saved for His glory. In fact, this fits the context, doesn't it? Because remember last week when we ended, Paul warned this church in Rome, hey, there's going to be some people among you who are going to come up and they're going to want to divide the church. And they're going to want to lead some of you astray from a contrary doctrine and a contrary gospel. And yet, though Paul had great reason for concern for these believers in Rome, not just because of the division within, but from the opposition outside, right, the persecution that was going to come from the Roman Empire, though he had great reason for concern, he also had great reason for hope. Because the God who is able to save broken people from their sins and bring them into a right relationship with Him, He is also able to keep them 
saved. And though they may wander at times, and though they may get lost at times, he will always, like that great parable, find his lost children and bring them home. Therefore, praise God, because he is able to strengthen us through the same gospel that saved us. Friends, here's what it boils down to. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Isn't that what Paul wrote in chapter 8? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now it's critical to remember that the context of that statement is Christian suffering. And friends, here's the crazy truth that brought Paul to worship here at the end. It's this, that God is smarter than us. He is smarter. He's wiser than us. He knows what he's doing. That what we think, oh my gosh, if that happens, lockdowns happen, the church is going to get destroyed. Suffering happens, Christians are going to stop believing. All of the things that we think, okay, that's going to be the thing that ends the gospel, ends Christianity, ends this work that God is doing, oftentimes when we think, okay, that is it, what we think will destroy or defeat what God is doing or separate us from God oftentimes is the very means by which God seeks to establish, strengthen, and mature us. Friends, only the eternal, wise God can turn what was meant for evil and destruction and turn it into something good in the lives of his children. If the gospel tells us anything, it's this, that God is sovereign over human suffering and evil. That what on the surface appears to be a cosmic defeat for God and us and a win for the enemy will turn out to be in the end the exact opposite. A cosmic win for God and us and an epic defeat of the enemy. And the same is true in the Christian life. It was true for Joseph in the book of Genesis. It was true for Paul, and it's true for all of you. In fact, Paul couldn't have said it any better when he said it, probably the most famous verse in Romans, Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Friends, no matter how long you've been a Christian, the gospel is the foundation by which our entire lives is built. And when your life is built on that foundation, no matter what storms will come, you will not fall. In fact, it makes you even stronger. Preserving us to the end is one of the many things that the gospel does for the Christian believer. And it's the biggest thing in this doxology that brought Paul to worship the Lord. But there's two more things that the gospel does, and I just want to mention them to you briefly. And it's this, that the gospel goes. So one of the things the gospel does is it goes 
out to all the nations. And secondly, the gospel brings about faith and obedience. Now, the second one we've already touched on, so I won't say much more than to say that without the gospel, saving faith is impossible since it's through the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, and the hearing of the gospel, that faith is awakened inside of the hearer. This Paul made clear in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if you want a strong faith, it comes from reading the scriptures and knowing God's word. If you want a weak faith, then stay away from the scriptures. But faith, as the great reformer Martin Luther once famously quipped, that though we are saved by faith alone, our faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by works of obedience. But even this, the gospel is able to do. Not only does it impart faith, but it humbles us, it breaks down our pride, it corrects our thinking, and it guides us in living out the will of God. And finally, what the gospel does is it goes out to all of the nations. You know, the apostle Paul was concerned, right? He wanted to bring the gospel to all the lost people groups in, in the world. And you know what Paul's thinking? Man, I'm getting old. I, I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And, and what's going to happen when I'm done? And you know what brought Paul to worship and praise is he saw that the gospel, when it's inside somebody, it causes them to want to go out and do mission Again, so Paul praises God because he's thinking, it's not dependent on me, but it goes out. The gospel goes out because when the gospel transforms a person's life, it transforms them not just in how they think about themselves, but how they think about the world and outreach. And let me just say it this way. There is a certain rush and thrill when standing outside of a roller coaster park because you know what's coming. And there is another thrill when you get closer to the roller coaster and you're standing in line and now you can hear the people on the roller coaster and you feel the vibrations of the metal and there's a, you know, it brings a little bit of a thrill to your life. But the greatest thrill is when you're on the coaster, when you're riding it. And if I may use that as an illustration, that's the thrill Paul had for gospel outreach. The rush that brought Paul to worship here at the end was not merely the fact that God saved him and others, and it wasn't merely that God is able to keep them saved through the powerful message of the gospel, but that God has invited us to go out and be used by God, to be on this gospel train, this coaster that is going out into all the world. Friends, as, as John Piper, he famously put it this way, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. And what he meant by that is that worship inspires mission. We want other people to worship God because we understand this is what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. We want God to be worshiped because we have fallen in love with him and we know that these other people aren't experiencing the fullness of joy through worship of Jesus Christ. And so we are on mission because there is worship lacking in other people, and we want them to worship. So worship inspires mission, and mission fuels more and more worship. There is no greater thrill in the world than knowing and experiencing God through faith in the gracious and glorious gospel of Jesus, and then seeing that gospel 
come to light in other people. And this, this Paul, to Paul, brought him great reason for worship and joy. Why don't we pray together? God, we come before you, and, and Lord, it is truly grace upon grace, as John wrote in the beginning of his gospel, the thrill of being in a relationship with you, God. It's beyond our ability to really put words to it. I'm sure even as Paul is, is writing these words, and, and he's, he keeps compounding all of these words because he's He's trying to find an adequate word to describe how amazing it is to know you and to walk with you and then to be used by you and to know that it's not dependent upon us, but that it's all of you. We can be on mission because, God, you're already on mission. We already have the victory because you've already won the victory for us. And all of these things, Paul would say elsewhere, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Lord, that's our our reason for for worship. That's our reason for praise. But but this morning, I think, as we reflect on tragedy, as we have maybe reflect on a on a hard week or or different things going on in our lives, and and maybe we often wonder, God, are, are you even there? Do you even care? If anything, we should walk away from this message and this letter and think, God, you you are for us. You are not against us. And we give you thanks and praise for that reality. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.